Okay, today we come to the fourth I am statement. Um, there are seven in the Gospel of John, and John is unique in his Gospel of providing these declarations of the Lord Jesus uh, as to who he is, and uh, we've looked at three of them previously, and we come now to uh, a very, very special one. They're all remarkably helpful, uh, but this one uh, has certainly ministered to my heart as I have prepared it, and it's often the case that as you prepare a, a message, uh, the, the one who teaches typically benefits more than anybody else. I, I, I hope you benefit from it. I trust that you will because it's God's Word, but it certainly has ministered to, to, uh, to my soul. But John 10, uh, Jesus, the, uh, the Good Shepherd. Let me just read this section, and it's reproduced for you on page one of your handout, but John 10, verse 11 and following. Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This passage, this wonderful fourth I am statement of the Lord Jesus, when he speaks of himself as the Good Shepherd, is just intensely comforting, intensely pastoral uh, in its application. And there's a pastor. I've met. He's a good, solid brother in Christ, uh, Jason Halopoulos. Uh, but he said this, There's maybe no picture of Christ that I think about or dwell on more than that of the Good Shepherd. Worry, anxiety, and fear too easily crop their little heads up in my mind, life, and heart. And this image is good to reflect and think upon. If I can be overly simplistic and perhaps overly bold, I think that the vast majority of problems in the Christian life stem from us not reflecting, ruminating, and resting on Christ as our Good Shepherd. Can anybody relate to that? By the time we're finished, I, I trust that every single one of us, to varying degrees, can relate to what Jason Halopoulos has said and what the Scripture says. But the, the pastoral applications of this I am statement are just profound, and we need to really grasp them and meditate upon these things. That's, that's how they take root in our hearts. It's how it, it changes our lives. But a brief introduction, and I'm not going to overly dwell on, on this, but R.C. Sproul, I've got this section. It's called an overview. But um, the, the, the setting of um, the Good Shepherd in John 10 is, is in, uh, very closely related to and, and inseparable from John 9 when you had 
this blind man, a man born blind, and he was healed. Uh, Jesus healed him. He healed him on the Sabbath, and it created no small amount of controversy with the religious authorities, the Jews, as the Scripture says in the Gospel of John. And when John uses the term the Jews, he's not singling out an ethnic identity per se. He's referring to the religious authorities who were his enemies. They were the, really the enemies of the soul of their own people because they did not point them to the one who really could minister to their spiritual needs. They pointed them every direction but to Jesus. They discounted Jesus. They went after him. They had one intent and one intent only, and that was to kill him, to take him off the, off the picture. So they were not shepherds. The, the, the scripture speaks often, for they were shepherds, but they were bad shepherds. They were evil, wicked shepherds. And the, the scripture speaks in many, many occasions about shepherds, and not always in a pleasant, positive way. Ezekiel 34, for instance, speaks of the shepherds of Israel and, and speaks about the fact that they serve only themselves. They don't care for the sheep. The sheep are, are struggling. The sheep are starving. And what do the shepherds do? They attend to their own needs. They, they're not sacrificial in their care. But there are examples of wonderful shepherds in the Scripture, and Psalm 23 is one of my very, very favorite passages of Scripture. It's one that is often read in a variety of applications, but it is an intensely comforting and appropriately comforting passage. It's one that you should memorize and meditate upon. I certainly have. But Jesus comes to this, this I am statement, and he says, I am the good shepherd. Page two of your notes, just... Uh, I want to point you, this is about the two-thirds of the way down on the page. From the fourth century, there was uh, a pastor, theologian by the name of Gregory of Nazianus, and uh, he had an interesting way of pointing out the the ironies, if I can use that term, uh, of the Lord Jesus. He began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. Jesus ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty on the cross, yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, and yet he casts out demons. Jesus wept, that was over Lazarus, and yet he wipes away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, and yet by his death he destroyed the power of death. Jesus was always pointing to himself. He used a variety of contexts to do that, but it's, it's, nothing is more important for any one of us sitting here today than to know for sure that you know the good shepherd. That you, that you know that you're one of his sheep, that he knows you. And so my prayer is if you are not sure that Jesus is your shepherd, that, uh, that today may be that day when you come to that, that wonderful realization by trusting to him and trusting him alone for your eternal soul. But page two, um, just uh, continuing just by way of transition, when we talk about the good shepherd. Uh, sometimes we read these expressions and they just sort of float by. But the, the word that is used in the Greek text for good can mean a variety of things, but it's not simply good as opposed to bad. It, it has a connotation 
of, uh, of something that is, is beautiful, that is, that is pleasing, that is excellent, that is distinguished. And uh, Strong's Greek Concordance points out a number of those facets. So it's not simply good as opposed to bad. There's a notable feature to this shepherd, this very good shepherd. Page three. One, one scholar actually translated the statement of Christ, I am the good shepherd, is I am the shepherd, the shepherd beautiful. And that would be an appropriate understanding of the way that in that context that Jesus is describing himself. And it's a stark contrast to the shepherds that Jesus saw really mistreating the sheep. And you, you, you know that there was a time when Jesus was grieved in his heart because he had compassion over the people and they were, as he described them, like sheep without a shepherd. They were not being loved. They were not being cared for. But nine observations, nine observations from this passage in John 10, and each of them are very much worth our consideration and our meditation upon these truths. And I I pray that as you take these notes home and you you reflect on them, that you'll just make a point of revisiting each of these and and praying over them and, and applying them in your own life. But number one, and this is where we really start, he gives each of his own sheep eternal life. If you were to ask people just in a casual conversation, who who do you think Jesus is? You you might hear comments like he was a profound moral teacher. He was an example. Um, If you're speaking with a genuine believer, they would say he's the one who came and saved my soul from hell by giving his life and paying the the debt of sin that that I personally owed. He paid that on my behalf. He's my only hope of heaven and my sure and certain hope of heaven. A true believer would say that. But there's countless people, including professors in religion departments and colleges, that would characterize Jesus as, as a most profound moral teacher. He didn't come to be a moral teacher. He came to save people from their sin. He came to deliver them from their sin, to pay the debt that they owed, to live a perfect life. And J.C. Ryle just makes the, the point in his wonderful notes. He's got this series of messages, expository notes on the Gospels, and, and I, I commend it. It's, it's a wonderful resource published by Banner of Truth. But this is the great object or the reason, the purpose for which Jesus came into the world. It's, it's really the, the singular reason that he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His son came as a shepherd, and he came as a savior so that the one who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He, he came, Ryle says, to procure eternal life for man by the price of his own vicarious, and that means substitutionary, death. He came to be a mighty fountain of spiritual life for all mankind to which sinners coming by faith might drink and drinking might live forevermore. That's why he came. He came to give life. He came to, to do what was required by the Father to satisfy the, the justice of God the Father so that people could be not only acquitted of their, their sin, forgiven of their sin completely, but declared righteous because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. He came to do all of that. And as we reflect on, on that, we, we need to realize that before Christ in the Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament saints had this expectation. It was not as, as clear as, as when Jesus came and, and identified himself and proclaimed who he was, but they knew that there would be a Messiah who would come. That, that promise began in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall. 
And they knew that the seed of the woman would come to crush the, the head of the serpent. They knew that there would be a, a Messiah coming. They knew that there would be this spotless lamb that would come. They knew that this, these lambs and, and, and bulls that were being sacrificed on a constant basis before them were, were really not the end to their, their, their problem. Because if that was the case, there wouldn't be a perpetual need to sacrifice them. So they knew that there would be one coming, that there would be a Messiah. They didn't have the clear understanding of exactly who he would be, but, but they knew that he was coming. And when Jesus came, he said, I am the one that has come. And, and that's the reason exactly that, that they came, that he came. And they understood from afar off. Page two, so he came to give eternal life. That's why he came. Number two, each of the great shepherd's sheep were given to him by his father. John 10, verse 29 my Father who has given them to me is greater than, all, greater than all. You need to realize, brothers and sisters, that you are a sheep that has been personally given to Jesus. Personally. Identified before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us that in Ephesians that, that God set forth his love upon us before the foundation of the world. You are a sheep that was bequeathed to this great shepherd before eternity, before you were even born, before you even knew that you were predestined to become one of his sheep by name. And, and there may be some sitting here who don't know Jesus as their, their Savior, but it may be that he's chosen you. You just haven't come yet to that point and realized that. And, and our prayer is that if you don't know Jesus as that great shepherd of your own soul, that today will be the day that you'll realize why he came and that you'll entrust yourself personally to him. But the Father, if you can imagine this, gave each sheep personally, specifically to his son. That's what the scripture says. My Father has given them to me. Number three, Christ our good shepherd knows each of his sheep perfectly. Now the the implications of this are profound and we, we cannot miss this. Jesus said in John 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. He doesn't just simply know their name. He does know their name. Jesus knows your name. He prays for you by name. He knows you. He, he died for you. But he, he knows everything about you. And our response to that has to be what the psalmist said in, in Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. I mean, our response has to be that of verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Now, God knows your path. He, he's, int, he's intimately acquainted with all your ways, your obedient ways, your sinful ways. He knows each word on your tongue. He knows when you are worried. He knows when you're struggling. He knows when you don't trust him. He knows all those things. He knows when you're, when you're fighting uh, some type of a battle in your own soul. He knows every aspect about you. J.C. Rowell said this, he knows all of his believing people, their names, their families, 
their dwelling places, their circumstances, their private history, their experience, their trials. With all of these things, Jesus is perfectly acquainted. There's no surprises to our shepherd. There's not a thing about the least and the lowest of them of which he is not familiar. The children of this world may not know Christians, and they may count their lives folly, but the good shepherd knows his own. He knows them thoroughly, and wonderful to say, though he knows them, he does not despise them. The point that Ryle is making is he knows all of your sin. He knows all of your shortcomings. He knows your rebellious heart. He knows your worrying heart. He knows your anxious heart, and he loves you perfectly. He, he has chosen you, and, he, and you belong to him, and you cannot escape from his hand. He's purchased you by the blood of the Good Shepherd. Number four, the Good Shepherd loves his weak sheep. Psalm 103, is, I've read this over and over. If you're looking for a psalm to minister to your heart about the blessings of God, and what he has done for you and what he is doing for you and the nature of all the care that he extends for you. Psalm 103 is a wonderful, wonderful psalm to spend time just slowly percolating in your soul and memorizing these these passages and dwelling on them. But as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And notice this, brothers and sisters, he knows our frame and he is mindful that we are but dust. He knows your limitations. He, he knows where you're weak. He knows where you struggle. He knows where you're having a difficult time. Page five of the notes. A fellow named Colin Smith. Jesus Christ knows you completely. You're his sheep. The Father has given him, given you to him personally, by name. There may be times when you're a mystery to yourself, but you are never a mystery to Christ. In the Psalms, we read, the Lord knows our frame. Christ knows your temperament, your moods. He knows what lifts you up, and he knows what gets you down. There is nothing you could ever tell Jesus about yourself that he does not already know completely. Here is the joy of following Jesus Christ. Because he knows you completely, he is able to lead you. Not only able, but he does lead you effectively. And the good shepherd knows what you need. And he is able to give you what you need at precisely the time that you need it. Ryle said this, he bears patiently with the many weaknesses and infirmities of the sheep. And he does not cast them off because they are wayward, erring, sick, footsore, or lame. And all of us fall at various points into those categories. We are weary. We are lame. We are wayward. Spurgeon also pointed this out. He said, the weaklings and the sickly of the flock are the special objects of the Savior's care. You think, dear heart, that you were forgotten because of your nothingness and weakness and poverty. That's the reason, he says, that you're remembered. Think of the care that the shepherd, he knows you perfectly. He knows your infirmities. He knows your trials. He knows your worries. He knows your sin. He knows your rebellious heart. He knows when you are fighting him and when you're following him. And he never turns his head from you. He never turns his face from you because he knows you. He's chosen you. And the the good shepherd is the one who holds you in his own hand. But the good shepherd gave his own life for the sheep. 
John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This was such a stark contrast with the hireling. The, the hireling, Jesus was describing those who had responsibility for the souls of the sheep, of, of the, the people, but they, they abdicated their role. They, they were looking strictly after their own good. And they abandoned those under their care, and, and the, 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 those under the care suffered greatly. But Jesus is truly the good, the beautiful, perfect, excellent, loving shepherd. And a shepherd who exemplifies and demonstrates his sacrificial love by dying for his own sheep. And we'll see exactly what that means. But John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. And then later in that passage in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, Ryle has another comment on this on page 6. When he, the good shepherd, saw that nothing, absolutely nothing, could deliver them from hell and the devil but his own blood, he willingly made his soul an offering for their sins. And the merit of that death he is now presenting before the Father's throne. The sheep are saved forevermore because the Good Shepherd died for them. The Good Shepherd knew when he took on human flesh. John 1 talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that he, he dwelt among us. He took on human flesh so that he could do one thing, and that is to live the perfect life that not a single one of us could live and to die the death that he did not deserve, that all of us deserve to die outside of Christ. He came for that reason. He came to be that lamb that Isaiah spoke of so often. He came as that suffering servant that Isaiah pictures so poignantly in Isaiah 53. He came specifically to fulfill that role. All of us, like sheep, Isaiah 53 says, have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. All and each one. I, I don't see any exceptions there. All of us, like sheep, have gone, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the good, this sacrificial shepherd, the iniquity of us all. That's why he came. And, and he, he gave his life as, as a sacrifice for sin. Number six, not only did he die for his sheep, but he did not die reluctantly. He did, he did not die passively, uh, reluctantly, hesitatingly, with, with any type of reluctance at all. Uh, he died willingly as a sacrifice for his sheep. It was an, an immediate response on his part. He knew exactly why he came. He came to die. He took on human flesh to die. And, and that was the specific purpose for which he came, to die for his sheep and to be raised again in victory. John 10, verse 17, no one has taken it, his life, against, uh, away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Again, Ryle makes a number of comments. I, I won't necessarily dwell on, on any one of them in particular, but he does make this comment toward the bottom of the page that the treachery of Judas, the armed band of priest servants, the enmity of the scribes and Pharisees, the justice of Pontius Pilate, 
the crude hands of Roman soldiers, the scourge, the nails, the spear, all of these could not have harmed a hair on our Lord's head unless he had allowed them. And he did that willingly. Well might he say those remarkable words, Do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled? He came to, to die. He came knowing that he would be tortured, that he would be rejected, that he would be resisted, that he would be cursed. He came for all of those things. And he knew exactly what lie ahead of him. And that's why in the, in the garden, he, 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 he probably, uh, like perspiration, like blood. And he struggled in that, not, not hesitatingly, but, Father, if, if this cup can pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. He came in perfect obedience to the Father. He knew exactly what hell would look like, and it would look like he suffered it personally. To understand what he suffered, you need to realize that hell is eternal. For someone who is outside of Christ when they die, it is appointed a man once to die, and after that comes judgment. The book of Hebrews tells us that. And every sin will ultimately be paid for. There is no sin that will not be paid for. Either we pay for it personally in hell for all eternity, or Jesus has paid for it in his person as shepherd. And hell is eternal because the wrath of God can never be exhausted. It's, there's an infinite debt that, that God must exact and will exact. There is no commutation of the penalty that is imposed upon those who are suffering without a substitute. But it's eternal. Jesus in his own person literally in time extinguished an eternity of hell for his people on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then to tell us die, it is finished. He had exhausted in time, fully satisfied in time, what will never be satisfied in hell. So every, the question is, who will pay for your sins? You will pay for it personally, or Jesus, your good shepherd, has paid for it? That's the question that each of us and all of us must come to grips with is who's going to pay for your sin. Someone has to pay for your sin. Jesus, our shepherd, came to die for sin. He came and he did suffer God's wrath for sin. And that's, that's the debt that he came to pay. Number seven, not only did he die, not only did he die willingly, but number seven, he calls each of his own sheep personally. When, when he describes us in John 10, he, he describes uh, to him, uh, to, to the good shepherd, verse 3, the, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Now, what's going on there is there was a sheepfold, and if you weren't here last week, you can pick up a copy of the notes, but a sheepfold was generally a stone enclosure, walls, up to a certain height, and then there would typically be briars on top to prevent those who had ill intent from climbing over the walls. There, there, would, there were predators, there were wolves, there were wild dogs, there were any number of predators that, that feasted on sheep. And, and given an opportunity, they would have come over the walls, or they would have come through the single door of access. And so you had a doorkeeper, and he knew who was entitled to come. And that was a, that was a shepherd. No one else was admitted entry. 
And the reason was it was for safekeeping of the sheep. But then the shepherd would call his sheep and the sheep would respond. They knew the, the shepherd. The shepherd would know each of his sheep by name. And he called them and they would respond. And if you know Jesus as your shepherd, you, you, you respond to his call. You, he, he calls you and you've already responded. You respond to him. You obey him. Jesus says, how do, how do, I, how do you love me? By obeying me. So you respond to what he, what he says that you should be doing. And, and you respond by entrusting your own eternal soul to him. So Jesus knows you and you know him. That's the nature of what it means. But he knows them personally. And if you can imagine this, he's leading his sheep in this picture in, in this John passage to, to pasture. They would come out and they would feed. And if you think about Psalm 23, that's exactly what the psalmist is describing. I am the good shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul, etc. He would, he would take them to green pastures, and he would lead them beside still waters. That's what the shepherd does, and that's what he does for his people. He feeds them. He nourishes them. He sustains them. He guards them. And when he calls them by name, he's, he's, his, his own sheep are responding to him, and, and he's calling them for one purpose, and that purpose is to care for them. And he always does. The, the shepherd always cares for his sheep. There's never an instant in all eternity when the shepherd will not care personally for his own sheep by name. You know that he prays for you, right? And he intercedes for you now in heaven. And, and hopefully we'll talk about that subject in more detail. But the, but the shepherd prays for his own sheep even now. And he guides you and he cares for you by name. There's never been an instant when the shepherd has not cared for you. Number eight, the good shepherd has a flock that's larger than his own original audience and understood. John 10, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Now, there was one sheepfold, okay? He was just saying that they're sheep. They don't know that he's their sheep. Uh, they, they don't recognize him as their shepherd yet. Some of them haven't been born yet. It, it, he was speaking of you, by the way. He was speaking of each of you that are trusting him today. You're, you're part of that, that group that he's identifying that were not in existence when he said those words. And there are those that will follow you that in time that are part of that sheepfold. And that's why we share the, the gospel. That's why we evangelize, because there's people out there that are his sheep, and they just don't know it yet. And they haven't responded to the shepherd yet. And our responsibility and our privilege is to tell them that there's a shepherd that will watch over their souls and they need to entrust themselves to him because there's no one else that will watch over them for all eternity. That's the, the essence of, of the gospel in, in a picturesque rather way. But they don't know it yet. You're, you're part of the group that is being described here. The ethnic Jews were looking at this and they had a rather privileged estimation of themselves. And so he's talking about, guess what? There's a lot of Gentiles too. They, you, you just don't know this, but they're going to be coming in as well. Not only Gentiles, but Jews. He's got a church that's comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And that number just keeps increasing. And the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world so that he might redeem those sheep that the father had given to him from all eternity. And that number just keeps growing. It's a fixed number. It's a big number. I don't know the number. None of us know the number. Jesus knows the number. And he's, he will not lose a single one that he died for. And that the, all of them at some point in, in eternity will all be in that sheepfold and they will be one flock. Number nine, the good shepherd never loses a single one of his blood-bought sheep. 
John 10, verse 28. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There is nothing, no one, that can snatch you out of the hand of the shepherd. My Father, who has given them to me, we spoke of that earlier, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They had a singular purpose. The Father had determined in eternity past to save a vast number of, of men and women and boys and girls and to, to redeem them from, from their sin and to, to make them his own. And the purpose of the Lord Jesus was in obedience to his Father's will was to do exactly what was required to accomplish that purpose which had been determined from all eternity. And he does exactly that. His blood is sufficient to purpose to purchase every sheep that the Father had identified in eternity past. And that's exactly what Jesus did for his people in time. There was a single purpose. And A.W. Pink makes a, a wonderful synopsis of this when he says, The hand of Christ is beneath us and the hand of the Father is above us. Thus we are secured between the clasped hands of omnipotence. Think about that. Meditate on that. Well, by way of application, page 8. Trusting our Good Shepherd. A fellow named Randy Smith makes this comment, and, and I, I, I identify with this. I, I don't know if the rest of you will. I suspect that you will in varying points in time, but... He says, we have warning lights that God uses to get our attention when we are not trusting him. And he talks about two of those warning lights. One of them is anxiety, and the other one is a lack of joy. Does anyone here ever experience anxiety, worry, fret, reluctance to do what you know you need to do, thinking about what might happen, even though it hasn't happened yet, catastrophizing, Imagining in your own mind the worst possible outcome when you have no way of knowing what the outcome could be. Does anybody do that? I'm seeing some nodding heads. I think if we're honest, we'll fall into that category. Some of you may be that way today. Some of you maybe have been that way the, the, the last couple of days. Some of you may be that way tomorrow. But he makes the point that we have these warning lights that God uses our attention when we're not trusting him. How, how do we know? Now, you can do one thing. There's a saying, if you're looking at your car and you get this stop engine light, you can do one of two things. You can take out a hammer and knock out the light, or you can say, I need to stop and pay attention to what's going on. The first option generally is not a good outcome to ignore that or to, to destroy the light. But what about anxiety? Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. And anxiety is, is a function of not looking to the Good Shepherd. Anxiety is, is a function of not trusting God. It's, it's not an insignificant sin. It's a big sin. It's a, it's a big issue because we're saying, I, I don't know that I can trust God with my circumstances. I don't know that God is big enough, wise enough, powerful enough to deal with me. And I'm not sure that God loves me because if he loved me, he wouldn't let me be in this set of circumstances. All of those are fictions. God is omnipotent, and God does love his people, and God is wise, perfectly wise, and we're not. We're not omnipotent. We're not all wise. We don't know what we should be doing most of the time, but God is perfectly wise, and he cares for you, and he loves for you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent his son for you, 
for the, to, and the good shepherd won't have come for you. But anxiety is a reflection that we're not trusting God. A lack of joy, that's usually a function of worrying and anxiety. It's usually an accomplice to anxiety. But he goes on in this last paragraph, our security is not in our own strength or feeble free will, but in his strength and his will. It is not as much about us holding on to him, but the good shepherd holding on to us. Well, that's, that's something that we, we need to realize. That's something we need to meditate upon. By way of application, how do you take these truths? How do you take these precious realities about the good shepherd and drill them down into your soul so that when you find those warning lights coming into your existence, when you see the flashing light of anxiety and lack of joy and you begin to catastrophize and you begin to worry and anxiety and and fret and uncertainty fills your heart, what do you do? And the answer to that is you pray the scripture. You pray the scripture. I did that this morning on Psalm 103. I went line by line with Psalm 103, just putting into practice exactly what I'm referring to today. So what do you do? You, you take a line of Scripture, and Don Whitney has a book called Praying the Bible, and the essence is if you want to know how to pray, take your Bible, open it up, take a line of Scripture, read that line, stop, pray that, that line. It could mean repeating that line. It could mean saying thank you for that line. It could be applying that line. But the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus, thank you that you are my good shepherd. Jesus, thank you that you know me, that you died for me, that you laid down your life for me willingly, that you know me perfectly, you know all my infirmities, you know where I struggle, you know, when I'm having a hard time, you know, what, when I need, what I need to encourage me. You, you know that, that, Jesus, thank you for being my good shepherd. I shall not want. God, you've never failed me. You've never been a debtor to man. You've never, ever not provided for my daily bread. You've never, ever left me short of what I, my needs are. And you never will because your faithfulness and your mercies are new every morning. And because of your mercy, I'm not consumed. I can never exhaust your goodness, Lord. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Lord, there's so many dry pastures. There's so many ways of life. This world is an arid world. This world is full of briars. This world is full of trouble. And you you don't take me in those places and leave me there. You you may find me there from time to time. But what you do is you take me and you leave me where I will be fed. And you will provide me with green grass to feed on, not, not toxic, bitter weeds, but you will give me what I need. You've never left me in want, and Lord, I know that you will lead me to those green pastures. You'll always care for me. You lead me beside quiet waters. And Lord, you know when I need rest. You know when I need the tranquility of a quiet stream in my own life. When I need a pastor to lay down, and you know when I need that. And Lord, you, you will provide for that. You've never, ever failed me in that way, etc. You can take each line of Scripture and pray it. It's just an example. But Don Whitney talks about praying the Bible. And if you want to know how to pray, if that's a struggle for you, and for many of us, we, we find ourselves, how do I pray? I don't feel like praying. All of us find ourselves when our, our souls are dry and we need something to sort of kickstart our prayer time. The Bible will do that. Open your Bible, 
Find a line of scripture. The Psalms are a wonderful place to go. Read a line, pray a line. Read a line, pray a line. And pretty soon you've had 10 minutes of prayer. You've had 15 minutes of prayer, whatever the time may be. And you've had a wonderful time of communion with God. Phil Keller, he wrote a book. It's a wonderful book. A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He said, I know of nothing which so stimulates my faith in my Heavenly Father is to look back and reflect on his faithfulness to me in every crisis, in every chilling circumstance of life. Over and over, he has proved his care and concern for my welfare, gain, and again, I have been conscious of the Good Shepherd's guidance through dark days and deep valleys. Can you testify to that? I can. It, it, I, can, I can remember some times when things looked pretty dire and, and they looked very, very difficult. And, and God has had me in those circumstances to build my faith. It is, that's why we go through trials. That's why we go through tribulation. We don't, as, as J.B. Uh, Phillips says, when all sorts of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends, quoting James 1. But when you find yourself in these circumstances, you know that God extricates you from that. You know that he always delivers you. You know that God causes all things to work together for good in your life. Why? Because he's predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son. And how does he do that? He does that by putting you in situations that are too big for you to deal with personally so that you will learn to trust him. And then he shows that he can be trusted. He shows that he will never fail. That's the essence of what God does. And, and so... These warning lights are there to show us in our own souls when we need to trust him and when we're not trusting him. So in response to that, just on page 9, just a couple of things, Ryle once again makes a helpful comment. What do we do? We lean back our souls on these mighty truths and we're thankful. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A willing Savior, a loving Savior, a Savior who came specifically into the world to bring life to man is just the Savior that we need. If we hear his voice, repent, and believe, he is our own. And there's a wonderful benediction in, in the book of Hebrews. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, that great shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And can you say it with me? Amen. Amen. These things are true. These things are true.